Hello, and welcome to this FRDH, First Rough Draft of History podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. Social media, Twitter in particular, can be a curse, but not always. When Russia invaded Ukraine, my Twitterverse expanded rapidly as I came into virtual contact with many Ukrainians and diaspora Russians and Jewish Ukrainians and Russians, appalled by Putin's savage action. One of them was Boris Draljuk, translator, poet, and at the time, the editor of the Los Angeles Review of Books. Draljuk had recently translated the stories of Isaac Babel, the great Russian author of the post-revolution decades, who was executed in Stalin's purges. I read one of those stories for the podcast, and you can listen to it at the website, goldfarbpod.com, and you can make a donation there to help me keep the podcast going. The story, like many of Babel's stories, is set in Odessa, the port city on the Black Sea. Odessa has been in the news for the wrong reasons in this summer of 2023, as it has come under sustained attack as Putin attempts to prevent Ukraine from shipping grain to feed the world. So I decided to interview Boris Draljuk, a native Odessan, about his birthplace. But first, we spoke about identity, because at the heart of this bloody and terrible conflict is the identity question, including how languages shape our identities. And Boris Draljuk has accumulated many languages and with them identities in his comparatively young life, starting with being born in a country that no longer exists. I was born in the former Soviet Union. The The sense that I was Ukrainian was not strong in, uh, at, that, at that time. This was 1982. Uh, although I, I did perceive Ukrainianness as a, a as a kind of identity. Uh, we were taught Ukrainian in school. I enjoyed uh, the Ukrainian language. We read Ukrainian poetry, even at a at a very young age. But the the strongest element of my identity at the time was was my Jewishness, and also my civic identity as an Odessan. You know, even as a whippersnapper, when I was knee high to a grasshopper, I knew uh, that I was an Odessan. I knew that there was a particular way that Odessans spoke. I knew that older Odessans complimented me on my impeccable Odessan pronunciation. So uh, I knew that there was uh, Russian speech and then there was Odessan Russian speech. And I was a master of the latter, a budding master of the latter. But I would say that my first indication that there was something distinctly Ukrainian about me, not just Odessan, but Ukrainian, uh, you know, came very late in the game when we were leaving Odessa and had a, a long stop in Moscow in order to secure our refugee status, our, our final visas to board the plane to fly to the United States. And my encounters with the people in Moscow revealed to me that this was indeed a, a, a foreign country, although the language was nominally the same and I perfectly mutually intelligible. The way people behaved the absence of smiles, for one thing, the kind of brusqueness of the people I encountered, the even the scenery around me, it looked very different. And, and I, you know, from that point on, from the age of eight, uh, nine, I began to think of myself as an uh, immigrant, once I landed in the United States, as an immigrant from Odessa and, yes, from Ukraine. Now, over the years, watching Ukraine largely from abroad and studying uh, more of its history, studying more of its literature... I came uh, to identify more firmly with the Ukrainian aspect of my identity uh, and came to understand what it means to be a Ukrainian Jew, for instance, what it means to be, how one can be both Ukrainian and Jewish, how one does not 
conflict with the other, but in fact, it's part and parcel of, okay. of, a, of a same identity. We could talk more about Odessa. And I think yeah. I, that's where I'm going to go first. But let's not lose sight of Jewish-Ukrainian identity. Absolutely. Okay, so we go back to Odessa. Now, I have family roots in Odessa as well. And like many American Jews, I, I can tell you three or four places to which I can trace my my blood. But in my family, it was my father and my grandfather and my great-grandfather, that line, and they identified as Odessan. What is it about Odessa that makes it so different? Well, the first thing I'll say is that uh, I've not met a single Jew in the United States who doesn't tell me that at least one of uh, her or his grandparents is from Odessa. You you can't scratch a Jew without finding an Odessan. It's just one of those you know realities of life. Everyone's grandparents are from Odessa, and part of that is is that Odessa was a major seaport and remains a major seaport. Right now, it is a port under constant attack, uh, and uh, every news item I see breaks my heart. Um, I'm really living in a state of constant anxiety uh, watching what's happening at this very moment because I love that port. And um, that port uh, was a port of salvation for many Jews in the 19th century and early 20th century, uh, a place where they could first make a living because the port brought in goods that people who were in the mercantile trades could sell, could market. Also, there were one particularity of Odessan Jews is that they are starkers. They're they're strong and muscular and, and able-bodied. Uh, there were a lot of Jewish workers in the port, steep doors. Um, but also a lot of Jews fled from the Russian Empire, from the pogroms of the late 19th century and early 20th century, fled from the systemic uh, persecution uh, that they faced under the Tsars through Odessa. And in 1918, 1919, 1920, uh, so many of those who fled the Russian Empire as it was collapsing, just one step ahead of the Soviet forces uh, of the Bolsheviks, fled through Odessa. So one one reason that, that you always find an Odessan at, at the roots of uh, an American family tree is that people who weren't really necessarily Odessans themselves fled through Odessa, and their last port uh, of call <laughs> was was uh, uh, Odessa before they reached Ellis Island. So what makes Odessa uh, a culture special? Well, it's a culture of the periphery. It is a major town, a relatively new town built in, in the late 18th century on land conquered from, from the Ottoman uh, Turks that was a land of opportunity. The fact that it was far from the major capitals, it was far from, from St. Petersburg and far from Moscow, uh, made it uh, more difficult to govern centrally. So it was a, a land where the the long arm of the law was just too short to reach you. If you wanted to do something that was a little shady, a little gray, Odessa was a good place to do it. Uh, when when you think of uh, you know the uh, the American frontier, think of Odessa as kind of the American frontier. It was the Wild West for much of the 19th century. And it was in the Pale of Settlement, so Jews could settle there freely. People with great aspirations, both, let's say, criminal and perfectly legitimate, could find a base of operations in Odessa and build their careers. So you had this very colorful underworld, but you also had a middle class, a middle class, a, a burgeoning middle class of Jews, even an upper, uh, you know, upper class. Uh, Jews could really live 
a normal life between pogroms in Odessa, whereas they they probably couldn't really make that kind of life for themselves anywhere else. So how does this affect speech and the inflections and the usages? Because again, you know, you think of, there's a video going around the other day of President Zelensky, and he was telling a story. Now, he's not an Odessan, but his timing remains impeccable for someone who started yes. as a professional comedian with a law degree. And I, I have the sense that uh, among the Jewish roots of in America that you could trace back to Odessa is comedy and stand-up comedy. There is something, a worldview that goes into it, but an inflection in and a sting in the tail of the sentence. You're absolutely right. The language of Odessa is inflected by uh, Yiddish to a, to a greater extent than any other brand of Russian anywhere spoken anywhere else in the world, really. Uh, and and one of the reasons for that, one of the reasons for the presence of this kind of Yiddish inflection, the the the, the shape that the sentences take, uh, the spice level of uh, the Russian spoken in Odessa is that Jews were a part of Odessan culture. They shaped Odessan culture from the very start. There were other major centers of Jewish life in Europe, of course. There was Warsaw, there was Vilnius, but these were places with deep histories that predated the Jews. Odessa was born with Jews in it. So whatever was spoken there uh, was spoken by Jews from the very start. And it was also born with Ukrainians in it. So you can, you know, always hear Ukrainianisms in every other sentence spoken by Odessans, be they Jewish or not. And you can hear Yiddishisms in the sentences of Odessans who are not Jewish at all, uh, but because they grew up in the city, because the city was baked with Jews at the very center of it, it, it they still remain, you know, Jewish in in in, in speech. Now, the, the, the point about comedy, that's an important one. Odessa was the matrix for entertainment in both the Russian Empire and the Soviet Union. If there was anything funny going on, you could probably trace it back to Odessa. If there was any great performer on the major stages of the, the Russian Empire or the Soviet Union, chances are that performer had roots in Odessa. The greatest jazz man of the Soviet 20th century, Leonid Utyosov, the man who popularized most of the major songs, the, both the criminal ballads and the you know, perfectly uh, innocent waltzes uh, that made the Soviet Union what it was uh, culturally in the 1920s and 1930s. He was an Odessan, a contemporary of Babel, Isaac Babel. He was Stalin's favorite performer. So although he was uh, unable to perform the criminal songs that made him famous in the 1920s anywhere publicly in the 1930s, Stalin would have command performances arranged for him so he could hear these Odessan songs because they were irresistible. Everybody loved them and continue. They continue to love them. So this is uh, when when people look for an idiom in which to entertain in Russian the idiom that they land on more often than not is the Odessan idiom. It's just synonymous with entertainment, synonymous with humor. To try and describe the city. It is a very beautiful, if slightly decrepit city of 19th century architecture, laid out more like a French city. It sits on a bluff overlooking the Black Sea. It's quite a beautiful place. Very much so. 
Have you yeah, been able to go back? Oh, yes, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Uh, last time we were there was uh, 2019, just before the pandemic. And um, I very much hope to go back. Well, just as soon as possible. We have infant, well, toddler twins. So travel is a, a little bit more complicated than it was. Do you still have but, family there? I do. I have an aunt there who uh, refuses to leave. We we got her out shortly after the full-scale invasion began, but but she couldn't stay away. So she's right back where where she started and refuses to budge. Well, it is it is a striking city. Um, the the architecture is Rococo, Art Nouveau. It's a nice mix of uh, architectural styles, and much of it is built of limestone, which does give it that kind of decrepit. Uh, but very charmingly decrepit appearance. Everything seems to be crumbling around you, but that crumbling has a, the peeling has an appeal all its own. One of the things that I remember most that I, you know, treasure as a memory are all of those afternoons I spent as a child in Odessan courtyards. Typical thing to see in Odessa is you, you step into a nondescript entrance and the whole world of the courtyard opens up before you. Buildings on every side, clothes hanging out to dry, the sun hitting the windows, the cats roaming the yard. Just a delight. So now we'll go to down, we'll double back and go down to the other path about Jewish Ukrainian identity. Mm -hmm. It's an interesting question, and I think it's one that dogs a number of people in the West about really what's going on in Ukraine now during the war, particularly mm -hmm. in the Jewish community. For a lot of people, this is where the Holocaust of bullets took place. Mm -hmm. And, you know, 18 months, a million and a half people were shot. They weren't gas, they were shot. And so to them, that's what Ukraine is. Ukraine is where we fled and the locals led the pogroms egged on by the Russians or the Soviets or the Nazis. But that is a bit simplistic. I think it is simplistic. And uh, I, I think one thing that, that's absent from many of these analyses, or perhaps not absent, perhaps it's present, but it should be emphasized in any case, is that Jews came to the Russian Empire uh, through the partitions of Poland and remained locked in place in these regions of the Russian Empire on the outskirts in what is called the Pale of Settlement. The reason that there weren't pogroms in Moscow or east of the Pale of Settlement is that there were no Jews east of those regions, really. There were, but but in, in very small numbers. They faced anti-Semitism, of course, on a daily basis. But the official Tsarist policy of anti-Semitism, which is what is ultimately responsible for the pogroms, that played out in the territory where the Jews lived, which is the territory of present-day Ukraine. We can say that the, the locals led the pogroms egged on by the Tsarist uh, authorities, but it's a chicken or the egg situation. The the enmity between the locals and the Jews, the, the way that the society was structured, it was structured by the Tsarist authorities. Jews were placed in positions to absorb whatever disgruntlement, whatever dissatisfaction Ukrainian peasants might have felt they were the a line of defense for for, for uh, or a place a safe place to displace all of that uh, aggression for the Tsarist authorities. They could always appeal to anti-Semitism and make their problems a little bit less difficult. Now, does that make what happened on the territory of Ukraine excusable? Absolutely not. What is remarkable about 
uh, Ukraine, uh, especially in the past 30 years, are the strides that have been made to reckon with that history imperfectly, but still impressively. The strides that have been made to reconcile the communities and this is something that we simply don't see in Russia. We see it in Ukraine. You know, we see a Jewish president in Ukraine. We don't see that in Russia. We see, of course, Jews in positions of power in Russia, but the kind of pride that uh, Zelensky takes in his background, the kind of pride that Ukrainians take in his background, that's, I think, unique to Ukraine. And it shows just how far a nation determined to modernize itself and to address its past can come in 30 years' time. It's interesting. I was just in Israel and Egypt and making some programs for the BBC about the 50th anniversary of the Yom Kippur War, October 1973. And I was talking to a woman and who's written a couple of novels about the aftermath of that war. And then we got to talking about the war in Ukraine, as everybody does. I mean, so we talk about and it, certainly in Israel, so people talk about. And I you know, I said, look, I'm hearing a lot of ambivalence, and I'm surprised. I would have thought that given how many Odessans have migrated to Israel in the last 20 years, you'd think that people would be a little bit more on the side of Zelensky, the Jewish president, and Ukraine. And said, you know, it may be true, but both my grandmothers died at Babiyar, and mm. I, I can't really get past that. That comment stayed with me, and I couldn't explain to her that even in the last decade, I've seen through my own reporting some pretty dramatic changes in attitudes from interviewing the leaders of, of Svoboda, the mm -hmm. ultra-nationalist anti-Semitic party, whose younger members formed the core of the Azov Battalion when it was formed after the Maidan, to going back to Lviv, and seeing monuments erected at the site of the Yanovska camp, a death camp that had been ignored, but was now mm -hmm. officially recognized with monuments. And it was a big commemorative ceremony. There are plaques all over Lviv now. The first time I went, there weren't any. So it, it is happening, and it's been happening rapidly before yes. the war. And it's hard to explain that to people who live, who haven't been to see it. Absolutely. I mean, uh, I think uh, it is it is hard to explain that to people who haven't seen it firsthand. Absolutely. And and uh, I would just urge them to keep an open mind and and to listen to Ukrainians, listen to what Ukrainians are saying about their own history. The, the other thing that I think is uh, crucial is explain the role that Russia has played, although you don't want to ascribe everything that's happening uh, in Ukraine to to Russia. You don't want to say that everything is in reaction to Russia. But um Russian, the Russian policy of vilifying Ukrainians, of labeling them all as uh, Nazis and anti-Semites has backfired in a uh, spectacular fashion because whatever the Russians say Ukrainians are, the Ukrainians are eager to prove that they're not. So in a way, they're hastening the process of uh, addressing the past in Ukraine simply by mischaracterizing it so grotesquely. And the uh, the other thing, of course, that uh, the this this battle to save Russian speakers in Ukraine, uh, supposedly to save Russian speakers in Ukraine, has done is it made is it has made the Russian language much weaker uh, in Ukraine. So the Russophone community in Ukraine is suffering tremendously, both in terms of 
actual carnage. They are being bombed. And in terms of the prestige of, of their language or the acceptance of their language, all thanks to supposedly this, uh, this policy of uh, saving the Russian world. So yes, I, I, I do think that the, th the situation on the ground is changing very, very quickly. And most of the changes that uh, the Ukrainians have initiated themselves are in the positive direction. Because you are at least trilingual, you may be more linguals than I than even that. It wouldn't surprise me. What what does the actual language that you're speaking? How does it affect your personality? We're talking in English. Well, you didn't grow up speaking English. You, you emigrated to the U.S. You grew up speaking Russian of a particular kind, of Odessan Russian, and some Ukrainian. You were, had Ukrainian at school. When you go from one language to the other, is that affecting your personality, the, your worldview, that sort of thing? Not, not to uh, you know the kind of sapper wolf uh, extent that that some would insist. I don't think that my vision of reality changes dramatically as I switch from language uh, from one language to another. There are, of course, adjustments that need to be made in, in terms of how I express myself. But I wouldn't be a translator if I believed, I wouldn't be the kind of translator that I am, I should say, if I believed that a language is a reality and moving from one to the other changes our reality. I think that all languages are a way to get at reality, be it an inner reality or an outer reality, the reality of one's subjective perspective or the objective reality that sits outside of it uh, to which the subject responds. All languages are a way of getting at it. And they add value to that perspective. They add value to our attempts to grapple with reality, inner or outer reality. When I translate the work of Odessan authors, I, I, I would prefer to work with Odessan authors. I know the language that they are speaking. I know the perspective that they are taking. The language, of course, is a part of that perspective. But I also know ways of speaking in English that match that perspective, that can recreate some elements of that perspective. And so I believe in the intelligibility, mutual intelligibility of these uh, of these worldviews. And I see that evidence in myself, you know, when I switch from Russian to English or from English to Russian, I remain the same person. And I look for the same ways of uh, expressing the same views. When you got to America, did you go straight to L.A.? Is that where your parents ended up? Brief layover at JFK, just a few hours, long enough for a friend of the family to buy me every kind of chocolate bar I could get my hands on. But that was it. That was the, that was the extent of my experience of New York. So you get and I'm to happy for it to stay that way. Okay, yeah. sorry. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, we can talk about that in another podcast. So you get to LA. How much English did you have when you arrived? Two words. I, I had the, the word hello. Uh, and the word poppy, which is California state flower. There was this uh, crew right out of a Bible story or an Ilfi Petrov novel of fly-by-night instructors of English who passed around flyers in uh, 1990 when so many people were leaving Odessa, passed around flyers advertising a three-week course in English, a crash course in English. Well, the course lasted for exactly one evening because then they left town with a suitcase full of cash. But uh, what they taught us in that one evening was the word hello. And I, I, they must have had some kind of guidebook to the United States, the state flower of the state to which we were emigrating. So uh, it, in my case, it was the poppy. <laughs> but wasn't there a time when you were learning English, both in school, 
however else you learned it. I mean, the hard way in the playground, you know, mm -hmm. being laughed at for getting it wrong. Oh, yeah. Um, Absolutely. I'm assuming. Yeah. Brutally. Yeah. <laughs> well, you found that you couldn't express yourself in English. God, this is a stupid language. No, it, there, there, were, there were moments when I feared that I would never be able to find ways to share the vast library of knowledge that I had accumulated in Russian. I thought I was, you know, the smartest kid on the block. I, I knew so much about the ancient world, having read one book about archaeology with a lot of pictures in it. And uh, I was scared that I wouldn't be able to translate all of this knowledge uh, into English. But that didn't last very long. And, I, I, you know, at that age, at the age of nine, your brain is still linguistically a sponge. It just soaks up uh, whatever is around it, whatever you're exposed to. And so within six months or so, I, I had enough English to get around uh, and, and to share my my knowledge. And to have Odessan comebacks fly through your brain faster than the speed of light. So when someone teased you in the playground, you could give them the proper Odessan response. In absolutely, absolutely, yeah. Uh, the verbal raspberry they deserved. <laughs> Is that the the first forms of translation you did, trying to figure out the, the smart ass comeback that would save I, I, you? I, I wish I, I wish I, I I had been so precocious. I mean, yes, it, it, it is true that I, I did spend a lot of time thinking of uh, ways to get out of being bullied. But I think the first translation that could really be called a translation that that happened a little bit later. Yes, I, I was interpreting Russian uh, internally and and coming up with ways of saying stuff in, in English. Uh, of course, we all do that. But before I knew it, I was thinking in English. But thinking like an Odessa in English. So and without having to to translate anything, I was simply being myself in my new language, in my uh, adopted language. But the first translation that one could properly call a translation, that came about uh, a few years later when I was 13 or 14 years old and realized that my Russian had really rusted away. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't have the kind of command that I had at even at eight uh, at the age of 13 or 14, and, and I began to miss it. I began to realize that this was an opportunity, special opportunity uh, that I was given. Uh, I had two languages at least, uh, not just one, and uh, I should really work on, on that first language. And I asked my mother what to do. She said I should read poetry in Russian. Uh, the, the reason being is that Russian has dynamic stress. You never know where the emphasis will fall on a word uh, in a sentence. So if you're reading prose, you're liable to mispronounce every other word if you've never heard it before. And with poetry, most of the poetry written in Russian up until the, the, the end of the 20th century was written in form. It was metrical. Uh, the metrical patterns indicated where the emphases fell. So it, it was a kind of guide to pronunciation uh, on top of everything else. And that that was very helpful, but much to probably her chagrin, I fell deeply in love with Russian poetry and immediately uh, started translating it into English and subjecting her to all of my juvenile attempts. She was very encouraging. And I really have never stopped, you know, from, from the age of 14, I, I've been translating poetry from, from Russian into English and from Ukrainian as well. You settled in the Fairfax section of LA. Mm -hmm kind of a Jewish ghetto without walls. Mm -hmm. um, so it was a, a, an easier transition. Did you want to get get away from that enclosed world? My, my own experience of Fairfax, you know, I have a friend whose parents emigrated. They, they were people with tattoos on their arms. And 
they there was safety in numbers. It was an old world, old world in the new world kind of feeling. But I wonder, did did you want to step away from that and get into the wider America? If I were given a choice, I, I would stay in Fairfax for the rest of my life. That's that, that's the place that that really feels like home to me. I mean, it, it's a, a simulacrum of Odessa in many ways. Partly because it is much more than just a Jewish ghetto. It's 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 a highly diverse part of town, and increasingly, of course, a wealthy part of town. It wasn't always that, but it is it is now. The rents are going up and up and up, and uh, there are more new uh, Michelin star restaurants uh, uh, than ever before. But um, it was also distinctly Jewish, like Odessa, and uh, it happened to be home to a great high school, Fairfax High. Can't say enough about it. And what made it great is that is that it was, you know, a model inner city school, truly diverse, full of people from all walks of life, all social and cultural backgrounds, and was a great education in what it meant to be a kind of modern American, what it meant to be an Angelino and training ground for for acceptance and openness and curiosity. I, I loved uh, that high school. Uh, when I was there, I continue to love it, and uh, I love the neighborhood around it. You you learn something new every day in Fairfax, and 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 you miss it. You're in Tulsa. You miss I'm in it. Tulsa now. I miss it, of course. Yes, of course. But I but I also have come to really treasure Tulsa. Tulsa and and uh, Los Angeles uh, are also connected in the sense that the, there was a huge migration of Oklahomans. Uh, in the 1930s, during the the Great Depression, to California, M- many of them settled in the Central Valley, but uh, quite a few settled in in Southern California as well. So there's a an Oklahoman flavor to to California, and uh, I'm picking up on those connections while uh, stationed here. Yeah, well, some people would say that that Oklahoman flavor in California is what got Ronald Reagan elected. So uh, some perhaps... people will say that. <laughs> and got the John Birch Society started down there in Orange County. But we'll leave that aside. Yeah. We'll think of the Oklahomans <laughs> who went as being more more from the Tom Jode side of the microphone. The, the Woody Guthrie side, let's say. But coming back to identity questions, you're born Jewish in the Soviet Union, which no longer exists. When I was making one of my reports from Ukraine, it was about reviving Jewish life. And I kept coming across people whose grandparents had ID papers that said Jewish because it was Mm -hmm. an ethnicity as well as a religion. And they lost the papers. They got new papers, but didn't say they were Jewish. And now in 2018, when I made the report, they were showing their grandchildren, well, actually, you know, you're Jewish, but they had Mm -hmm. to hide it because first the Nazis and then official anti-Semitism blighted their lives. And then you get to America, it's not a problem, but it's a different thing altogether. As you've grown up, how much of you, how much do you identify as a Jew? Uh, I think I identify as a Jew very strongly, although I'm, I'm not really practicing. I belong to a synagogue here and it's a wonderful synagogue, but a very progressive one. So they're not making many demands on me. Uh, <laughs> uh, and like most Soviet Jews, I wouldn't—I shouldn't say like most Soviet Jews, but like a, a great many Soviet Jews, we were very secular. Our family were, were secular. But 
that didn't mean that we didn't treasure the ethnic component of our Jewish identity. It really was a kind of ethnic identity that, that we didn't treasure the traditions that were passed down to us that we could still perpetuate outside of religious practice. And uh, that we brought with us to the United States. Some people who came in my generation have become much more religious than, uh, than I have become. But for me, it remains a, an ethnic and cultural identity. Uh, and it's very easy to be proud of being Jewish if you're from Odessa, because Odessa was a place where you could be, you know, not without anti-Semitism, but you could be openly Jewish. And so many of the great cultural products of Odessa are so markedly Jewish. You could take pride in those products. You can take pride in those authors, in those performers, and in their songs, and in their prose and in their poetry and and say yes that's our people did that we did that and so i i uh, i remain uh, very proudly identified as jewish partly because of that background that, that upbringing i read your tra you translated isaac babel and i read one of your translations as a podcast about a year and a half ago a lot of people liked it i should probably read another one <laughs> and i was wondering if you Take a minute if you need to find it. Have a couple of more recent translations of poetry. I think your translations are fantastic. Your ability to render the language into an English that is sounds like it was written in English, which is of course the trick for any translator. It you know you don't see the the grammatical weirdness that identifies the source as being in another language. You managed to smooth all that stuff away. Have you got anything new? One or two? Well, yes. I, I, and one I'm of your working... own. And one of your own. Why not? Oh, no, I don't know. I Okay. Well, uh, let's let's put it this way. Uh, I do have a few uh, newish things. Uh, I've been working on two projects that are historical. Uh, one over a long period of time. It's only 10 poems, but there are 10 poems that mean a great deal to me by a man named Vernon Duke. Now, that doesn't sound like a Russian speaker, uh, does it? But but he was. He was born Vladimir Dukelsky um, and brought up in Ukraine, uh, identified as Russian, but also as Ukrainian, and uh, fled uh, through Odessa, uh, although he spent most of his childhood and youth in Kiev, fled through Odessa in 1919 to Constantinople, and from Constantinople made his way to Paris, and from Paris to the United States, in the United States, he became a very well-known composer and songwriter under the name Vernon Duke, which was suggested to him, this name, by Ira Gershwin. So he was a very uh, prominent member of the uh, American cultural institution that was Tin Pan Alley. He was also a very well-known classical composer under his original name, Vladimir Dukelsky. Less well-known is his work as a poet. He he wrote a number of, of really charming poems towards the end of his life in the 1950s and 1960s. And uh, a, a sequence of these poems concerns his uh, final hometown, which was Los Angeles, a town that, that he loved. And I've been translating these portraits of life in, in Los Angeles from the early 60s for quite some time. I'm almost done with the entire cycle, but just the other day, I translated a poem about Santa Monica Beach, where I too spent many blissful afternoons, a beach that he loved. So I, if you know, if, if you want me to read something frivolous, this would be the perfect frivolous thing to read. Uh, frivolous, uh, it's, the, it's the summertime. Be frivolous. Yeah, it's the summertime, exactly. And I did this, I did this for my birthday, which was just a couple of weeks ago. So Santa Monica Beach by, by uh, Vernon Duke. 
How nice to bask upon the beach. The water is so clear, so light. On one side is a swan white chest and all around are meaty thighs. Awakened by a gentle breeze, I'll sidle up, lean on your shoulder while a slim boy dives in the waves, as does his aunt, plumper and older. The dogs have fun digging up sand and barking loud without their muzzles. A mother feeds her newborn son while bodybuilders flex their muscles. Sailing near shore, a merry boat pierces our ears with its sharp whistle. Schoolboys and schoolgirls take no note, pour Coca-Cola down their throats to wash down undigested lessons. A lady quite advanced in age eclipses, even blinds the young. Her skin puts all their tans to shame, a scintillating scarlet brown. Bustling about are rowdy crews of poets, acrobats, and swimmers. The damsel's swimsuits are the hues of sunset, rich in reds and blues. It's sunset, off for home and dinner. Oh. So that's a that's a delightful little poem, and and it yeah. puts me in mind of uh, of one uh, by an Odessan poet uh, that describes a similar scene, but in Odessa. Uh, on that beach, uh, a beach that also uh, I think that Vernon Vernon knew well. So poems like this explain why I feel so at home in Los Angeles. It it really is very close to to what I knew from early childhood. Have you got the Russian original close by? Uh, yes, I do somewhere here. Do you, uh, would you like it, me to read that? Um, not the whole thing, but yeah. you know, just to hear the rhythm of Russian. Oh sure, a less bloody sadness of this war is that Russian is an exceptionally beautiful language. Even if you don't speak it, when you hear it spoken in a certain way, not the way, but not the way Vergosian speaks it or, but the way, the way it's written in poetry, it is fantastically beautiful. It's musical just to hear. So maybe it'd be good just to hear, hear the original sure. Russian. Sure. This is, I'll, I'll, I'll read two stanzas. Направо чья-то грудь лебежа, и чита в круг окорока. Разбужен ласковой прохладой, я к твоему плечу прильну, а мальчик с теткой толстозадой ныряет в теплую волну. Thank you. Of course. You, no, but because you you captured the same basic rhythm in, in the English yeah. translation. And yeah, Coca-Cola to wash down undigested lessons. Uh, <laughs> that's a very, very good image. I like that. Ah, of course, nowadays it takes longer to get from Fairfax to Santa Monica Beach than it used to. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. Well, it depends on when you leave the house. Yeah, three in the morning. It's not a problem. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and if you'd like, I can read I can read one more poem uh, that's about um, Odessa. I think that might be appropriate. Okay. Uh, would that be okay? Or uh, Yeah, please. Yeah, okay. Uh, and this is also something that I did for my birthday, but a few years ago after uh, coming back from, from my trip with my wife to Odessa. So let me just, uh, this is a poem by a poet named Simeon Aliender, who spent most of his life in Moscow, but but he was a proud Odessan. And this is, uh, in fact, uh, appropriate for, for this season. Uh, July is the month that he describes. It was also his birthday month and uh, and is my birthday month. This is the poem. Once on a train without warning, I heard two strangers say the name of the town I was born in one July on a warm rainy day. And I felt these fleeting neighbors give off a southern breeze. I saw the sun of my youth smiling above the trees. I remembered it all, the blue sea, 
the distant silvery dock, my friend's fishing boat, how he sailed in the morning fog, the light of the lighthouse, the ships, how still their shadows lie, and you, awash in white foam, home of a childhood gone by. Thank you. Boris, what, what, what people listening to this should imagine is you and I sitting somewhere in a cafe in Odessa with a glass of tea, no milk, stirring endlessly, maybe eating cheesecake, and talking like this all day. You know, this mm-hmm. is this would this would be heaven, but we can't do it. Yeah. So I'm just going to ask one last question about the war is a war of imperial imperialist reassertion. It's imperialist recidivism is what it is. Official Russia simply can't help itself. Doesn't matter what the ideology is. Tsarism, Soviet communism, doesn't matter. This is how it works with the official classes of Russia. But it is also a war of identity. And do you think that it is actually forging Ukrainian identity or is it the identity that has existed but has always been suppressed? That's a very, very, very good question. I, I, I feel that it isn't, it isn't making a new Ukrainian identity, but it is refining what it means to be Ukrainian. I don't want to give the war any credit. It doesn't. It shouldn't have happened. It should stop immediately. But as it goes on, each painful minute is making it clearer to Ukrainians what it means to be Ukrainian. They are fighting to preserve not just their nation, not just their territory, but their way of life, a way of life that they wish to evolve naturally. They want to live a free life to determine for themselves which direction their country should take, to determine for themselves what it means to be Ukrainian. And I think their determination is hardening with each minute. Or Australia, thank you very much. Thank you very much. And that's all for this FRDH podcast. Thanks again to Boris Traljuk. And remember, visit the website, goldfarbpod.com, make a donation, and listen to the Bible story. It's really good. Thanks.